Hello and welcome to another episode of Open to Criticism with me, Wendy Lloyd. I'm a film critic and after years of digging into the inequalities within film criticism for my academic research, I'm now continuing the conversation out in the world with this podcast. Each week, my guest and I discuss how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. And for more background about this podcast, visit my website, wendyloyd.com. This week, I'm thrilled to introduce my guest, Professor Matthias Fry. The concept of legitimacy or authority, um, as I call it in my, my book, is really the linchpin of the identity of the critic. They have this sort of dual role. On the one hand, they're the, they're the representative of the public. On the other hand, they're the pedagogue of the public. And, and this is the key tension. Professor Fry is an academic whose book, The Permanent Crisis of Film Criticism, was a central resource for my master's dissertation on inequalities in film criticism. And I am going to brag a bit here that Matthias kindly read my dissertation before we chatted and said he thought it was, quote, brilliant. Yep, it's fair to say I'm pretty chuffed about that. Matthias Fry is Professor and Head of the Department of Media, Culture and Creative Industries at City University in London. He's a film and media industry scholar and, as I discovered during my research, one of not that many academics specifically researching film criticism rather than the industry and its movies. I began by asking Matthias whether I was right in thinking there hasn't been that much film criticism research or whether it was just that I was a bit of a rubbish researcher. No, not at all, Wendy. Um, I think one of the very remarkable things about the academic research on criticism is just how recent um, it's been. So over the years, there were some anthologies of individual critics, perhaps um, roundups of you know, sight and sound reviews over the years, um, but there wasn't much of, of anything until about 20 years ago. And there was an important book called Artists in the Audience. Uh, that was from 1999. And in, in some ways, that book is very symptomatic because, you know, his argument is essentially that critics uh, can be artists, that criticism can be art. So you see the way in which um, criticism was pushed to the margins. It was it was felt that it wasn't important enough. It was ephemeral it wasn't. It didn't, um, you know, capture the the high theory, perhaps. So it's really only been in the last twenty years that there's been a growing interest. But it is absolutely still modest compared to other other things. Yeah. Well, it's good that you've come into play then, because um, your book was just a lifesaver for me doing my studies. And it's so fantastic to get to talk to you about it today. Um, the title of the book, I know you've written several, but the title of the book that um, I suppose it particularly pertains to our conversation and the one that I, um, you know, was my Bible, continues to be, is The Permanent Crisis of Film Criticism, The Anxiety of Authority. Um, can you explain a little about the title and how this became the focus of the book? Um, the, the concept of the book and writing the book, it came up in, in 2015 and writing it over a series of years. And what I was trying to do um, was to better understand uh, what was an imminent crisis at the moment. So lots of critics at the time saying, this is the end of criticism, this is the death of a critic, uh, all of these critics are losing losing their job. A lot of the kind of a doomsday rhetoric. Um, and they usually thought of social media as the enemy number one. And so what I did was I set about researching the whole history of criticism um, in four different countries, UK, USA, Germany, and France. 
And what I found, and, and this is how it ties into the title, was that there was almost no time in which uh, criticism was not seen to be in crisis. Mm-hmm. It was a, a permanent crisis. Yeah. But I, but I did find uh, about four or five specific points in time where the crisis was really bubbling um, to, to, the, to the surface. The commonality between those, those four points uh, was an historical moment of change within media technology or in the film industry itself. So one of the key points was actually quite close to the beginnings of criticism um, uh, in the, the late teens and early, early, early 20s. And this was just the time when film criticism was, was just being recognized as, as such. It was a, appearing not only in trade papers, but it was broadening out to reviews and in broadsheets, dailies and weeklies. It was being practiced also by, by theater critics. They were sort of moonlighting as, as film critics. And this sort of precipitated the first crisis, um, which was that the trade press writers were feeling that their existence was suddenly under threat, and that indeed their mode and purpose of criticism was under threat. So they had conceived of criticism as actually helping industry. Yeah, sort of promotional. Exactly. They, they thought that the best, you know, the best way um, to do is to communicate to the industry, tell them how to improve films. It wasn't an adversarial or objective uh, point of view. Another key point of crisis was in the the late 50s and into the 60s. And by this time, of course, film had become much more established. It was beginning to be seen uh, as a more artistic uh, type of of artistic medium. It was often being the publications that were writing about film were often tied to public institutions like the BFI and and Sight and Sound uh, or the new uh, film festivals that were coming into being. The, the, this new crisis was then this tension between that more kind of educational type of criticism that was associated with maybe a publication like Sight and Sound, and this new type of criticism being found in specialist film magazines like Cahiers de Cinéma uh, in France or Filmkritik in West Germany. And those types of publications were taking a more contrarian point of view. They were taking a more political stances. And so there was this, this crisis about what, what should criticism be? Should it be kind of to educate the, the masses or should it be to um, stake out a commitment to a, a certain political point of view? The third key crisis was in the, the 70s where you had uh, the emergence of star critics like Pauline Cahill, Roger Ebert. Uh, you have film criticism now appearing on television. And so there was lots of discussion at these points about the, 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 the dumbing down of criticism. They're not professionals. They're more kind of celebrities. And this really comes into then the, the final crisis, or at the time of my publication, the final crisis, which was the crisis produced by social media and the d- democratization of criticism in vlogs, um, in um, social media, and then Rotten Tomatoes and, and so on. And I think just to sort of tie all these crises together, the really common points was this feeling among critics that there was this sudden new and unique dumbing down of criticism in film culture. Also, a fragmentation of the audience. You see this a lot. Of course, that's also a common argument today with social media. Final point, there's a fear of a kind of a downfall in the authority of the critic, that if you have these, you know, 
regular people or people who are not specialists or not coming from the industry writing about criticism, that somehow cheapens uh, uh, criticism itself. Great. Well, there's so much of what you just said there I will be expanding on because it touches upon so much that I'd like to talk to you about anyway. Um, but let's let's do that last point that you just mentioned there in terms of this whole idea of dumbing down because it, it kind of connects to the whole idea of legitimacy, doesn't it? And this yes. the crisis of legitimacy for film critics and criticism itself, you know, going back before... Um, film in terms of, you know, I, I, I find it very fascinating learning about how, you know, really critics are essentially, you know, constantly having to convince audiences and consumers um, of their authority, that their verdict is legitimate, that it is of value and that film fans, well, without it, you won't really understand what's going on on screen. So that's kind of underpins criticism, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um the concept of legitimacy or authority, um, as I call it in my, my book, is really the linchpin of the identity of critic, of the critic. Um, and there was a, a sociologist named Jürgen Habermas who has a, a great line, and I'll just you know pa- paraphrase it here. And then essentially, and he was talking about critics and the Enlightenment, but it, it applies still today. Um, he said essentially that you know, the critic, they under, they have this sort of dual role. On the one hand, they're the, they're the representative of the public. On the other hand, they're the pedagogue of the public. And, and this is the key tension. So how do you as a critic stay one step ahead of the audience without losing that audience? Um, and it comes down to the, the question of, you know, why do I, if, if I'm, you know, the critic here, you know, why do I have the right to express my opinion or an expertise about a film? Why should you listen to me? And you see over the history of criticism different ways in which critics have tried to assert their authority or legitimacy. And that goes from things like being part of a certain institution, um, being um, banding together into trade unions or critic circles. But also they perform it, of course, textually, how they write, the style of how they write, how they express their taste, you know, how, how they make maybe contrarian opinions or try to stay a little bit ahead of the um, the, 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 the audience. And, and that, in, in my research, my historical research, that was often how the critics tried to resolve the crisis, was to find some way, whether stylistic or um, institutional, to preserve this advantage vis-a-vis the audience and thus justify themselves. Yeah. And I found it really interesting in your book, you know, reading about this whole high art affiliation, that criticism kind of came into play to transform cinema into something more artistic and high art. Um, bearing in mind that, you know, it, it began, didn't it, as, um, you know, lowbrow, cheap entertainment for the less educated masses who couldn't afford to go to the theatre at the time. So it's kind of interesting because it's almost like that origin is from the artistic and the high art point of view of cinema and art house. It's almost like it's um, film's dirty little secret, don't you think? Absolutely. And one cannot understand the history of criticism without understanding the history of the status of film within the other arts and within larger culture. Because in some ways, um, we can only understand what critics are doing textually, what they're doing stylistically, um, how they're trying to assert their authority, if we understand what is the status at that particular important time of film. As you as you say, in the in the origins of cinema, this was um, you know this was written off as something uh, that only you know working class uh, young men are going to be interested in. Um, and over the history of of cinema, as in the the rise of film festivals, 
uh, the implication of film into museums, other instances of high art. Um, this is where uh, film gained its status. When you know, film studies becomes uh, a subject of, of inquiry at universities, and you see that in criticism, and you know, you see this play out um, uh, among critics as, as well. So it's a it's absolutely a structural principle in the history of criticism. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's a really interesting point about how you know we have to look at it in the context of the time and what's going on and what's essentially threatening that authority of the critic at the time. Um, but I thought it was interesting, this whole you know clash between um, lowbrow origins and highbrow uh, critique. Um, you know, the issues we have, you know, it continues today in some ways. One of the examples is between mainstream cinema and art house, isn't it? You know, you've got that tension... And I was thinking about this the other day um, in terms of how blockbuster films these days um, and how PR companies are very much using online influencers in lieu of critics at those events. And for me, I thought, well, it makes sense because critics are, after all, traditionally, you know, looking at movies with a more highbrow aesthetic scrutiny. And if you've got a big blockbuster event, Marvel film or what have you, um, you probably don't really want that if you're promoting the film. And I noted in your book, you know, you cite some research saying that um, critics only really have influence over more artistic films and more sort of, quote unquote, discerning audiences. So, you know, do critics need to accept that they can't actually influence or speak for all cinema goers? I, I think so. I think, um, you know, critics need to, and I think many of them do, um, but they need to understand their place in, in film culture. We have lots and lots of empirical evidence in the meanwhile to say that with the exception of a few sorts of films, um, and I'll discuss those films in, in a second, criticism has essentially zero influence on box office. Um, and it's it's very, you know, it's very interesting to to, to read about, you know, People from the industry, producers, etc., who are just really desperate for that great review, and um, they think that's going to kind of make or make or break them. That that is not what the the evidence says. So I think that is actually a quite liberating thing in in many ways for from the film critics' perspective that they don't have to to carry that weight on their shoulders. Um, mm. And the very few sorts of films um, that are influenced by um, by reviews. Or films essentially that have low or no marketing budgets. So, in other words, in those cases, criticism is functioning as a sort of earned media um, in a in a vacuum of, of attention. But I think we need to to depart from that. You know, it's a, a very popular thing in popular culture that you have these make or break critics. In the end, um, that's that's not the case. I think there'd probably be some people, some critics who wouldn't like to <laughs> to think that, would they? They'd be like, "What? Where's my power?" Um, but you also mentioned um, when you were doing the going through over the um, you know the, the key crises in the history, the long-standing tension between you know sort of detached aesthetic criticism and more social, socio-political criticism. Um, and for me, it was very interesting, you know, to kind of read some quotes in the book from critics. You had, there was um, 1930s sight and sound critic Alistair Cook was, you know, very emphatic that critics should not be attending to the morality class or politics of films. And then in 1960, you've got Penelope Houston, who's chastising her colleagues, her critic colleagues, for critiquing in a bubble and she's saying they're ignoring social context. So, um, yeah, perhaps you can expand a bit more on this because this tension obviously is, you know, in play today um, and we'll move on to more recent manifestations of it. But, yeah, that's something that's, you know, again, age old, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Um, this is one of the really key tensions um, in in film criticism is what is the role of, of politics? What is the role of context? What is the role of biography, for example? You know, lots of, um, in the history of, of criticism, huge debates, for example, in the 1960s, Coyote de Cinema was trying to rehabilitate Leni Riefenstahl, this, um, yes. you know, notorious Nazi filmmaker. And um, the debate came to the fore. But, you know, this, this was from the, almost from the beginnings, certainly in the 1920s and 1930s. You had some classic examples like Rudolf Anheim and uh, Krakauer, and essentially, you know, Anheim representing this more formalist approach where it's very detached, very much, you know, dependent on the cognitive psychology of the of the spectator or the critic. Where Krakauer was arguing, actually, you can read into films; they have this almost subconscious psychology, and you, you find this not only in the German context, you find this in the U.S. context, and as you mentioned uh, yourself the UK context. And I think, you know, maybe just to put a final point on this, um, I mean, of course, one could say it would be re- reductive to say there's a kind of pendulum swinging. But to be sure, there are certain times when one or the other approach, the more so-called objective or the more so-called subjective, political, etc., comes to the fore. But maybe to put a little bit more sophisticated um, in spin on that, it might be interesting to advance the thesis that in many instances, the change between the apolitical and the political is more important than one or the other itself. In other words, to fit into you know my thesis about how to resolve these crises, sometimes critics are going, because if you, even if you look at, for example, Arnheim, in certain points of his career, he was advancing a very political criticism, and in some points, not. And I do wonder um, whether this fits into the, the, this idea of the critic needing to be one step ahead of the, the audience or one step ahead of his or her fellow critics. But it's interesting that because, you know, while we're wanting to move on to kind of more recent things and talk about what may have moved on since your book came out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned there, but you're, you're talking about a man kind of choosing when to be political about film and when not. And I'm thinking, you know, the, the, sh- the shifts recently in terms of the social movements that have made us more aware that there have been, you know, there is a massive demographic skew in criticism as there is in so many things. And that the key thing for criticism and film is that it's not representing um, voices that have just become kind of taken for granted, marginalised. And in criticism, that means about having more diversity of voices and getting them, you know, a greater amount of power. So it's interesting. It's almost like I kind of want to challenge your point there about, um, you know, it kind of moving and, and that something, you know, you could move them back and forth because... Is the genie not out of the bottle a bit when it comes to recognising that we can't just ignore sectors of society that haven't been properly represented both on screen and otherwise? And once we do that, that is political. Absolutely. And just to clarify my last point, I wasn't advancing, you know, uh, I wasn't uh, agreeing with Anheim or something. I, I was just trying to to characterise the, the, the history. Okay. Um, absolutely agree with your point. I mean, I think what's going on at the moment, well, a few things are going on. Obviously, there's a, a major social upheaval going on. Um, and that upheaval is tied into um, also media technological reckonings. I mean, let's not forget the hashtag MeToo movement um, is, uh, or was the origins of it, 
were very much imbricated into new media technology developments. Yeah. I mean, I, I do wonder if something like that would have happened if one, you know, if one didn't have not yet had Twitter and not yet had Facebook and 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 social media at, at the time. Um, so what we're also seeing in this is it is the the rise again of um, a certain uh, morality uh, and moralism and polit uh, and politicization of uh, criticism. So one you know example I didn't mention from uh, you know the, the 1920s and things is that there was at that time also besides Krakow and, and so on a very strong tradition of uh, church-based film reviewing. A very strong tradition of of um, film reviewing within the communist parties in in these countries, and I, I feel like this is coming back, but it's been deinstitutionalized, and social media is what is allowing that that to happen. And I think you know just to put a final fi final spin on this, I think there is now a willingness to re-ask that classic question of who has the authority to speak about film and culture. Mm. This is the classic question. But now it is is along the axis axes and vectors of gender, race, sexuality, um, and so on. And you know, I think when we think of you know, I'm just thinking ahead to my to my current and, and future research, looking at some of the statements made by some female actors like Brie Larson, uh, Carrie Mulligan, Jessica Chastain, and if I sort of, sort of paraphrase them, it's um, I don't care what this white dude says about my film; it's not made for him. <laughs> and I think. That 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 statement um, is really, if we essentialize that statement, it goes back to that classic question: Who has the authority to speak? And they're challenging um, that. And what you have just referred to the the fact that for the longest period of time, uh, there was a certain demographic of people that had the implicit authority to write about film because they were the ones that were being hired by institutions. Yeah, exactly. So as we shift that authority shifts and and then yes people can say no go Brie Larson I say <laughs> um, so um, let's see another word you used early on uh, was the democratization of um, film criticism via this whole way that the internet um, has changed things so significantly and as your book Permanent Crisis as you said published in 2015 you know kind of concludes looking at the effects of that by that point um, let's start by talking about the democratization that you talk about at that time and the fact that you you kind of highlight a lot of contradictions there and that claims to democratization can be kind of um, picked apart somewhat yeah exactly I mean it's you know, the book is only what you know seven or eight years old, but in some ways it feels quaint because at the time, the crisis that critics were experiencing was about Rotten Tomatoes and about, about Twitter and, you know, the fact that um, Twitter users are being quoted on a, a poster for, you know, film would be impossible. <laughs> and it seems almost quite now in, in the days of algorithmic recommender systems and, and, and AI. Um, but it's very interesting to, to look back. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I think my thesis was in some ways borne out because at that time, um, again, something like Rotten Tomatoes, um, what I was trying to do was a bit to challenge some of the anxiety that was being experienced at the time. You know, critics were essentially saying, well, now that we have uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it's just an algorithm. My, my feelings and opinions don't matter anymore. Uh, audiences aren't looking at individual critics. They're just looking at an algorithm. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, how I challenged it certainly in, in 2015 was to say, um, you know, 
at least there's still at least uh, Rotten Tomatoes still cares what critics think, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, in many ways, Rotten Tomatoes is reinforcing the belief that that audiences should care what critics believe, and and not just go on to you know some some you know audience score or or, or something like that, or, yeah. or, or or listen to an algorithm opinion system, uh, because you know their their value proposition was essentially to say. Um, you don't have to listen to your local critic anymore. Now you can get this so-called objective quotient of all of all the critics. Um, and yeah, as I say, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think, in some ways, those skirmishes are precipitating what is happening now with you know in the age of ChatGPT and and AI and 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 you know again, my message to critics is actually let's see this as a little bit of a liberation because you know for the longest time critics are complaining about, oh no, I have to write a capsule review and this is just a fluff promo piece and that replied that. Well, you don't have to write that anymore. ChatGPT can do that. Right. They can write they can write promotional copy. Now we can concentrate on longer pieces, more in-depth pieces, more sophisticated pieces. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, as you talk about, you know, with Rotten Tomatoes specifically, um, in fact, the way it was set up was very much about reinforcing critic power and also indeed giving greater weight to critics who had managed to secure a top critic post. But of course, they were all the same kinds of people. So it kind of reinforced the status quo big time. Absolutely. Yeah. It was interesting what you said about Rotten Tomatoes and their claim, which was to say, oh, you know, now you don't just have to kind of stick with your one local um, critic. You've got access to all of these ones. Um, and it was interesting that you mentioned in the book how that goes against, um, you know, a kind of more old fashioned view of criticism. I think you quoted Anne Thompson, a variety critic, who said... What we need to do as film fans is find a critic who will, quote, steer you straight, which I thought was wonderful. There's so much in that. You know, this this person will tell you what is good on screen. And, the, I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, especially doing the podcast, is that I increasingly feel that what's important is that we... We don't actually just remain drawn to people who we think like the same things as us. We need to kind of read critics who may like something different to explain to us why that has value. So that side of things really is kind of needs upsetting, doesn't it? I, I think so. And and what's very interesting um, about my more recent research into, into audiences and how they relate to critics is the degree to which audiences... Um, they want actually to be confirmed by the critic. Actually, the dialogue between the audience and critic, again, not, not for everyone, but for many audiences, they want their own initial, um, I don't want to call them biases, but let's say opinions or feelings to be confirmed. And so that dialogue is actually a confirmation. Um, and, and that was something that was very surprising to me because as you say, for many, for, you know, one tradition of thinking about criticism is actually... This is, um, you know, this is not just reinforcing your own taste. It's to challenge your taste and to offer you something new and to, and to, you know, open you up to a genre or a national cinema or to a director or to a format that will actually give you some sort of variety. So, for me personally, that is the important function of criticism to 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 expose me to something new. But I think we have to realize, for many people, 
They want to be affirmed by criticism rather than challenged. Well, that's why they should be listening to this podcast, because I'm trying to convince them otherwise. And I'm very grateful that you're here helping me do the job. Um, Let's move on then to your current research, because it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'm already deciding that when you finished it, I, I I want to have you back on. So tell us a bit about that. So essentially, my, my current research is about the next stage in, in the crisis of criticism, that is the, uh, the challenge of algorithmic recommender systems um, and how they might um, be so-called leading us towards filter bubbles or, and, and so on. And you know, to, to offer you just maybe one small insight that's relevant to our current discussion, um, going back to that quote by Anne Thompson that you, you mentioned, um, uh, about, you know, people these days don't have a, a certain critic. But in some ways, she's right. So what we found, and we did, you know, we did nationally representative surveys in this country, in the US, we did many, many interviews, we did demonstrations with with um, uh, with regular audiences, how they use these, uh, how they use streaming services. And they often don't look for, you know, they don't Google Mark Kermode, they don't Google, um, you know, Clive Hope, not Monka or whatever. They offer just Google reviews. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to, you know, acknowledge that maybe that's that's what's happening. It isn't people following certain star critics. It's actually they want to have a dialogue or indeed they want to have their taste affirmed. And then going on to my, my most recent project, what I'm trying to understand is essentially audience demand for diverse film casting. Because the argument from industry has typically been, well, you know, we would love to diversify casting, but we can't afford to. And that argument in turn is based on this fact that, well, you know, so-called mass audiences worldwide are largely white. Uh, this assumption that white people want to look at white actors. But the results that we're finding, um, we're going to be publishing this uh, quite soon, the results that we're finding is that it's absolutely not, not true. There is absolutely no correlation between white audiences favoring white actors when we gave them different headshots and asked them to to cast a a fictitious film. Things like awareness of actors is much, much more important. But I think actually our most important result um, is is, is the following. Not only did we ask the, the audiences, which actor would you prefer in this role? We then asked them, who do you think the average viewer would prefer? And when we asked that second question, the results changed dramatically. So basically, they would skew away from the, the black actor, they would skew away from the, the Asian. So the conclusion that we're, we're reaching is that in some ways, you know, industry people are audiences too. They are people with biases, they are people with, um, you know, things in, in their mind. They have internalized this belief that there are these masses of others who don't want to consume films that are have a casting of, of black and black and Asian, Asian actors. So what we want to do is we want to sort of break this vicious circle. Mm. If we can impress upon industry, we can you know relay this 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 research to the industry that actually um, it's not in your financial interest, it's not in your moral interest, it's not in any of your interests to keep perpetuating a system where uh, white actors, for example, are being favorite cast. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. It reminds me, I remember kind of 30 odd years ago when I was first working in radio and the class, you know, being told, oh, you know, women and indeed men, but, you know, women especially don't like women's voices on the radio. And this was told to me by a man. And it's it kind of reminds me of this whole thing where people kind of 
make these statements about others and they're yes. incredibly damaging. And yes. I wonder whether your research can in any way get into why exactly, where can pinpoint in some way where that comes from or is that just an impossible sort of insidious influence? Well, I, I think that's that's where the research world will go. Once we've sort of established this fact that essentially industry myths are recycled folk myths, yeah. then we can we can go to actually unpacking, you know, where do they, they come from? Or are they just this really this insidious vicious circle perpetuated by the media, perpetuated by these these instances that we have in our lived experiences, and then they sort of harden into facts when in fact they are not true at all. Yeah. Well, again, it also made me think when you were talking there, I went to uh, the cinema last weekend to see Rye Lane. Um, and the afterwards I stood up and the, the cinema itself was very mixed, much more than most films. And this story of a, a sort of black couple meeting in Peckham is really just so refreshing. And it's ridiculous that it's taken so long to have a, a black film of that um, style on screen and is just proving to be beloved by audiences across the board. So hopefully things like that also help to kind of smash those wrong perceptions. Absolutely. Well, once you see something that you, you know something is possible, then you can um, repeat the cycle in, in a positive way. Get into a virtuous circle, right? Well, that's it. You can only perpetuate the myths if you don't have some stark examples that counteract them. And that's what people have been depending on, haven't they? They've just said, oh, people don't want to see black Asian actors on screen. White people don't want to see it. And it's just said as a statement of fact. And because it's not happening... You can't contradict that. But, you know, slowly, slowly, we're starting to be able to smash those myths. Exactly. Um, you know, in the end, the film industry is a very risky business. And so, unfortunately, it tends towards conservative things. In other words, kind of creating a formula and then repeating it. Yeah. But if we can, you know, break that formula and create a new formula, then I think we, we have, um, you know, very good hopes for the future. Professor Matthias Fry there with some thought-provoking research about film criticism in the 21st century. And following on from my chat with Matthias about the changing role and perception of film critics, next week's guest is critic and film industry influencer Ashanti Omkar. We'll be chatting to me about how critics might need to reevaluate how they present themselves online to better establish their authority in the social media age. I feel like a lot of critics don't even use Instagram. They don't know how to make something that looks vibrant. You know, that, remember, the, the PR is somebody who is between 25 and 35 most of the time. They're the ones looking at these lists. If you're not visible to them, then why would they invite you? This is the other question to ask. That's it for this time. Thanks again for listening. Do please keep those reviews and ratings coming in. They make a world of a difference for independent podcasters like myself in terms of building that all-important audience. Open to Criticism is written, produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. Until next time. <laughs>